please welcome to the podcast, Micmac actor, public speaker, indigenous rights and youth advocate, Nadia George. Well, Nadia, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Um, we are recording this on June the 23rd. We've uh, all of us here in Canada have been in some sort of uh, isolation or um, uh, re- really separating ourselves from from our communities and, and and our friends and family for for going on three to four months now. Um, yeah. So I want to ask you, Nadia, how how have you been uh, for the past over the past uh, few months? You know, it's uh, in the beginning, it was definitely interesting. I had just come back from the Northwest Territories and um, I had all these plans. I'm much like everybody else, I'm sure, right? We were supposed to go back up there to um, engage with four more communities teaching wellness film workshops. And when the whole shutdown kind of happened, it was like a readjustment for me because I was like, okay. What am I going to do with my time? And then there's also, on top of that, all of the concerns around, I've been away, now I'm with my family. Have I, you know, potentially um, caught this coronavirus? Mm -hmm. And, you know, trying to make sure that everybody else is okay. And that was really, you know, a hard piece. You start to realize how important family is and how important your loved ones are. And as we started going through this, um, I really tried to, you know, think of ways I could keep myself busy because I'm a very busy person. I got lots going on and I like it that way. I like to be productive and keep moving forward. So, but at the same time, this kind of forced me to stop. Mm. It forced me to slow down, to really kind of do some good introspection. And as we moved through it, I actually got some really fantastic kind of new coping skills around um, anxiety, stress, all of the things that I think many of us in the world were feeling at that time. And coming, I mean, you know, we're not fully out in the clear, but as we are progressing and things are starting to reopen, what I've been finding is a lot of my actual um, day-to-day activities have changed. So although I would hike, I'm a massive um, inclined hiker, but I'm spending more time like being outside and being, you know, with my loved ones and reading. Oh, I used to love to read. And then you get busy. (laughs) There's no time for for books. Um, So yeah, it was definitely uh, a personal roller coaster, I think, of emotions and feelings going through this. But I definitely feel like I've come out better than I went into this um, pandemic in the sense Mm -hmm. of mentally and physically, you know, just being able to do more um, to balance myself. Wow. What, what are you reading by the way, these days? Ooh, right now I'm reading um, Midnight in Chernobyl. I'm not sure if I say that right. I know there's so many other ways to say that. Um, And it's actually just about the building of the nuclear plant um, all of the politics behind it, what happened, what went wrong, <laughs> wow. and why it went wrong, and the, the followed. I haven't gotten all the way through the book, so I'm sure yeah. there's still more that's uh, on it. And it's a really, really interesting piece for me because I love history. Okay. I love all that kind of stuff. 
and also just kind of starting to see how humans under pressure by, you know, having to pay your bills and Mm. keep your family and all of that, the choices sometimes that we make and the sacrifices that we make um, and the way that we can sacrifice other people's lives to try to just survive on our own. So it's a really interesting book that has quite a few cool dynamics. That's really interesting. I've read this incline hiker thing about you in a, in a number of places. Um, so I, you know, I've, I've seen the people in, uh, you know, in, the, in these gyms where they're, they're climbing, um, mm-hmm. you know, up a wall, upside down and all that sort of stuff. But incline hiker, what is, what is that about? <laughs> so the funny thing is, is I'm actually super afraid of heights. Well, actually, I'm not afraid of heights. Yeah. I'm just afraid of falling. Like You're f- sure. I can yes. be, yeah, I can be up in a building on someone's balcony and be fine. But the minute you put me on a step ladder, I'm like, oh my god, I could fall and break my ankle. Um, so it's it's interesting because I actually got into it um, when I was out in BC. I was visiting a friend of mine. And I had never done any kind of extreme incline hiking before. And she kind of tricked me into doing (laughs) what was considered on the scale of hiking as a difficult (laughs) hike. Um, I originally was just told it was an uh, intermediate one. And we ended up uh, hiking the Sea to Sky Summit in BC. And it took us about five hours to get up and I was not prepared. I had one bottle of water. Oh I brought like a handful of crackers. <laughs> I was in the worst running shoes ever. Um, but what it was, I think that the hook that kind of got me was the views and the ah. challenges and the way you feel once you get to the top that you're like, wow, I can't believe I actually got through this. And then to see the world almost like they say from that bird's eye view, right? Mm. It's a totally different kind of perspective. And to really just take it in, you're away from all the noise. Um, And it was just so beautiful that I just knew this was something I wanted to keep doing, but I wanted bigger challenges. Um, So luckily we took the Sea to Sky gondola down because (laughs) it was an interesting hike up. So that part was very relaxing and I highly recommend it. And then it got just to things in to with, where I just met other people, made really good friends with other people as I, you know, was on my journey and they enjoyed it as well. Some of my friends are like wilderness certified and those kinds of things. And then, you know, we decided that we wanted to kind of do some winter hiking. So then we went to Killarney, we hiked the the crack as it's called, um, out in the winter. That was interesting. I definitely learned a lot from trying to climb ice boulders. Um, but again, the views were lovely. <laughs> and then I think my biggest challenge was the Grand Canyon. It was an amazing hike. Uh, yeah, I read that. Yeah. Yeah, we went from um, the South Rim to the North Rim and back again in five days. There was three of us girls. Um, my one friend was actually four months pregnant. So uh, we, yeah, I know we were like, what are you doing? She's like, I could do this. And you know, the funniest part is she was like the most stable out of all of us. My knees were breaking down. My one friend had foot issues um, and she's just powering through it. So, you know, all the power to her, but um and it, it's a love-hate relationship. I've learned that, the Grand Canyon. <laughs> it's, it's so beautiful. Um, but we got detoured due to mudslides. We had hail and rain uh, when we were in there. 
Um, and I just think it's one of those places that if you are going to try to do these kinds of hikes, you really have to be prepared. You have to train properly. You have to know your gear. You have to know where you're going. And you ha honestly, we didn't bring a guide. We didn't hire one. And we, we did well. We managed. But that's just because of all the expertise that were surrounding us in the sense of my friends. I definitely don't recommend people do this on a whim. This is, it's very, very serious. And, uh, you know, coming out of that, I had some really pretty serious knee injuries. And, mm. um, but it's not going to stop me. I've, I've still got uh, Machu Picchu that I want to get down, uh, you know, the Everest base camp. So, you know, it's, uh, wow. like I said, it's those challenges that, that keep you moving. But there was, there's nothing like the Grand Canyon. It is a monster amongst itself, but it's beautiful and wonderful. And if people do want to take on that challenge, I recommend that they do, that they just do it safely. That's amazing. Okay, you've, you've got me uh, scratching that itch so to speak um start small and then go big <laughs> yeah yeah i mean the we sometimes do the ravines here in toronto um and and that's and that's as extreme as i get but uh no that that's always a fun thing to dis to, to discover and rediscover uh different uh different places um, yeah you learn a lot about yourself you you come to realize hmm. that your body um, in those moments will take you a lot further than your mind. There was times where we thought that we were lost. There was times where we thought we weren't going to make it out. And then you hear the sound of running water because each camp is on running water. So that way you have access okay. to it. And you hear that sound of running water and it's like, oh my Lord, we've been found. <laughs> so yeah, definitely give it a go though. Yeah. It's interesting you, you say that, you know, you, you learned a lot of things, uh, climbing places like um, the Grand Canyon. Um, and you also talked about how you've learned various coping skills over the past few months. Um, what, ha what have you learned about yourself over the past few months that you, you, sort of, you, you sort of can't or you don't have the sort of the downtime to when you're, like you said, keeping busy with life? I think the the biggest thing I've learned over this um, is that it's okay to not be okay all the time. Hmm. Um, you know, we try to be so strong. I think that society puts a lot of pressure on us to be perfect, to excel at a high level. Um, and so we are constantly then putting that additional pressure on ourselves to you know, be almost like these perfected robots in a sense. And when we are really super busy, we actually don't take the time to check in with ourselves and make sure that we're okay. And one of the big things that I was taught by an elder when I was young about, you know, flaws and how it's okay to need community and all those kinds of things was he said to me once, you know, when you look at the rocks and the rivers and the trees and anything that is not made by man, it all has curves and it all has flaws and it has imperfections. But yet mm. for some reason, we find that to be so, so beautiful. We find serenity in nature by yeah. rocks and rivers and trees. So why do we look at ourselves and see as it's such a negative thing, right? It's, you know, mm. we are, who the creator made us to be and we need to learn to embrace that and during that during this time it's given me that 
knowledge to take the time I need to reach out to people when I feel like I need that extra support. Um, and that it's okay to cry. It's okay to laugh, cry when you don't even know what you're crying about. <laughs> um, and you know, that we're all going through it. You know, as, as humans, we need connection. Um, we need love and support and kindness mm. and, and people. So I think that's really been the biggest thing for me is that, you know, we don't do anything alone. We perceive it that way. Even I remember when I was young, oh, I'm super independent. I pay my own rent. I do all of this. But there's a lot of other variables that go into that to make those things happen. So that was one of the biggest things I think I've learned through all of the hiking and also through um, COVID is that it's, it's just all right to be human. It's all right to feel. That's amazing. Those are some wise, some wise words for sure. Um, you are an, an actor. Um, and, but you recently, you, is, is it fair to say you recently rediscovered this, I don't want to call it a bug, but uh, rediscovered the, the acting bug, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be fair to say. Yeah, I think. okay. Um, I started in like community theater when I was young. Mm -hmm. I loved to sing and, you know, be the center of attention in my family. So it was <laughs> no, no surprise, I think. Um, and then just due to my childhood, we moved around a lot. Um, there wasn't a lot of time for me to be a part of community theater anymore. And a lot was kind of going on in, in the home. So I had kind of gotten away from it. And then over time, you know, decided, okay, it's time to get a career, get your life together. And when I was in university, I had this really great opportunity to take theater as an elective. And, you know, it was one of those things that we talk about the balance again. And I was like, you know, I have such heavy courses. How great would it be to just have a course where I can go out and I can express myself again mm. and, you know, take in some different kind of energy. So I decided to take that and I took it for a year in university and that's kind of what set the fire underneath me that I was okay. like, oh, I miss this so much. So that was in 2012, I think that that had happened. And then there was a pause. There was a bit of a pause because my son was still a bit young mm -hmm. and I was, you know, really moving through my, my um, social work career and learning more about that piece and I really wanted to solidify that and as my son got older and then you know turned 16 all of a sudden you know it was cooler to be with friends than to be with moss sure sure <laughs> which is fair uh, so I just recognized I had some time and I was also watching him and his friends they were in high school and created uh, this band called Aurora Blue and it was doing really well at the time wow. like they opened up for Sloan and what? all this kind of stuff was happening so i was like you know what yeah i'm going to i'm going to take on <laughs> that challenge of like taking that risk and doing something and i just went out i got an agent and was like you know what i'm just going to dive in i'm going to do this wow and i've never looked back since so and was her water drum was a, a short film you did in t a couple of years ago. Um, mm -hmm. Tell tell me about tell me about that film. What what attracted you 
specifically to that project? Um, well, I think it was, I mean, the script itself, I had been reached out to actually by John Elliott, the writer and director of Her Water Drum uh, through Facebook. And he had said, I was told that you are an Indigenous actress. Um, would you be open to auditioning for this? This is what it's about. Here's the script. So I read the script and immediately I was like, oh, I need to do this film. I hope I, I get this. I yeah. hope my audition lands in the right way. And it was because of the fact that this is such an important topic. Our missing and murdered Indigenous women girls, two-spirited. It's something that seems to get an attention within our communities, but for some reason we can't break out past it. And I was always kind of curious about that. Like, what was that about and what was happening? And as I started to really learn more about the history of how our people have been viewed and treated and why there is such an underlining um, systemic issue that's happening here and I was I just felt like this was a story that really needed to be told and I just hoped that I could do it justice that was my biggest um, fear I think going through that mm. and you know being sensitive to all of the stories all of the feelings that are out there and that these communities are feeling it, it was just such a it was a heavy piece, but it was an important piece. And I really, really wanted to be a part of that. Can you, for, for those of us, you talked about, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an issue that's well known within indigenous communities, not so much um, outside. Um, I know there was an inquiry uh, a number of years ago. Um, and so, so more people did, did become aware of it, but I was, I'm wondering if you could spend some time, um, sort of educating myself, at least, and, and maybe our listeners, on 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 why I want to ask this properly. Why there is this uh, problem uh, around missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls? You know, I think it, it's a long discussion to have, so I will yeah. try to summarize it. Sure, sure, and. Um, I can only go kind of into correlation, not extreme causation <laughs> for anybody who knows what those terms mean. Um, but it's what I have discovered through my own learning is that through colonization, Indigenous people in general were viewed as lesser than, that we sometimes were just objects, we weren't human. We didn't have the right to be treated the way that um, other um, races and people were treated. And as people grow up with this idea of, of how to treat others and, and essentially are trained in their minds to think these things, over time, that is how people, people view Indigenous people. Mm. And then you get into locations so these are these are locations where people are coming in and out all the time in the sense of work whether it's logging oil you know we've you've got people coming in who aren't staying there and they come in and these unfortunate 
things happen. These women are going missing. And nobody really is looking into it because of the fact that one, the women are considered lesser than. There are massive stereotypes around Indigenous women, you know, engaging in substance use and alcohol and all of these, these things that where it's like, oh, well, she must have been drunk or she probably voluntarily did this or, um, oh, she's run away. There's a lot of other um, underlining issues that create I guess I almost want to say um, an indifference mm. when it comes to police looking into this, you know, and then of course the people, these hor horrific people who have acted out in these crimes have moved on. They're no longer logging. They're no longer there. Then on top of that, you also get weather circumstances. When you're up North and you get a snowstorm, that snowstorm comes in and evidence is completely erased. Footprints are gone. Um, so there's just a lot, there's a lot I think that surrounds it that makes it first off difficult for our Indigenous people to fight this cause and not in, in, not in difficult in the sense that they don't want to fight it or they don't know how because our Indigenous communities are super strong and they are fighting with everything they've got. It's yeah. a matter of giving space for their voices to be heard mm -hmm. and respected. And that is the big piece. And to change the narrative on how we see Indigenous people, you know, and, and starting to help people understand the importance of this issue. And that, you know, the other thing too is that in smaller communities, we don't have a Toronto police force right? We don't have as many people out there being able to search. And trying to get that additional help has clearly been a struggle for these communities. And so this is an ongoing problem because the underlining pieces aren't being changed. They're not being looked at in the way that they need to be. Um, you know, and when Indigenous voices are saying, hey, this is how we can change this. Why are we not changing this? You know, I can only speculate, I don't actually know the reason, but I can only speculate that it comes back down to things like, oh, well, it's cost and it's time and it's, you know, all those other pieces. But, you know, it, that's just excuses. Mm. It's just excuses. And we need to see the change happening because if this was happening in any, you know, in other communities, this would be a pandemic in itself. Yes. People yes. would be like, wait a second, how is it that all of these women are going missing and nobody's looking into it? You know, we've got, I think it's um, one out of every 12 Indigenous women are, go are going missing. Wow. Um, you know, or there, there's, or one out of 12 women are, are you know, being abused or have um, high risk of violence and, and people don't seem to understand that. And the, the population of Indigenous women is so low compared to mm. the general population of the world. So to have those kinds of numbers is shocking. It's mind-blowing. So, it, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know what the solution is, but I do know that many people have brought it forward in the sense of their own feelings and what they feel the change could be. And we just need to start listening. We need to take action. We've recently here in Canada and, and in the U.S. sort of been uh, taking a look inwards at ourselves and how we how we treat um, 
black people, indigenous people, people of color, um, both how we treat them in our day-to-day -day, uh, activities as well as uh, systemically as well. Um, and, and so I'm wondering whether you have hope that at this time, we're realizing that we haven't, while we have this ideal of equality, we haven't been treating everybody uh, equitably. Uh, so I'm curious whether, whether you think, whether you have hope at that, that things are going to get better. I hope that they do. Mm. And I'm seeing these movements and I'm seeing the power that's behind them and I'm seeing the unity that's happening. And for me, that gives me hope. And I think that all these voices coming forward and us joining together through our struggles and uniting through them um, is a great way to begin this. I know it sounds interesting for me to say that we, we need to celebrate our similarities through the struggles that we've gone through. And what I mean by that is that we need to em embrace them and take that energy and use it to propel us forward in a positive way. My fear mm. is that we tell our stories, our stories are being listened to, but the people who can create change are maybe just going to surfacely um, respond to it. And by that, um, what I mean is, it's almost like when somebody goes in and they tell their story at a charity function. Yeah. And then everybody gives money because they feel guilty right? They feel guilty for that person's story and, oh, the agony and pain you must have gone through. I'm going to give some money to help your cause and help your charity. But then they walk out the door and, and that story is no longer remembered. That story is no longer being told anymore because they've now done their part. They've given their money, right? They've yeah. surfacely, you know, made themselves, un, um, I, I, you know, no, no longer responsible for it. And my fear is that, so I really hope that the government and the people who make our policy change and the people who have the power to create um, change through this aren't just handing over essentially, you know, that example of donations that we're really digging deep into this and doing those inquiries and really looking at, okay, where are we going wrong underneath all of this? Let's get to the, the roots of the problem and start looking for the change there. Um, because I think that's really where it's going to happen. And I don't want these voices to be lost. I, yeah. I think that these movements are amazing. And I think that we need to keep pushing. So my hope is that there will be a change. Um, but I, I also hope that the people who have um, the power to make the change are really doing it because they see this as an absolute necessity. This isn't, you know, just, oh, well, we should give this to them and give that to them, you know, so that way we can just feel good about it and, and you know, start to tone everything down. I, I, I'm just hoping that real change is going to be made. Yeah, and, and that sort of brings us to uh, your, your latest uh, project, Along the Water's Edge. Um, you know, it, we're, I, I, I'm trying to, 
I don't understand. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of learning and realizing why things happen. Um, but I, I can't understand how in, in the 21st century in Canada um, that there are Indigenous communities specifically that don't have access to clean water. You know, it's like anywhere you, anywhere that someone like myself would go to live in this country, there's clean water, right? Even when I go mm -hmm. camping, yes. there's clean water. Um, but there's not in, I, I think the movie starts off with, there, there are 60, is, is that right? At the time of when the movie was made, yeah, there was 55, just over 55 communities yeah. that were dealing with um, boil water advisories mm -hmm. and unsafe water, because yeah. that is what it is. It is hazardous water, toxic water. And um, now the scary piece is that we've, it, that number's actually increased. So it went from 55 wow. to 61 in February. Okay. And pr at this point, um, I, I haven't been able to find more research on that to see where those numbers are at now. Mm -hmm. But the fact that it increased, <laughs> just it really shows that whatever they're doing is not working. It's just not. So there, whether there needs to be more evidence-based research on the outcomes of what's happening here, um, I'm not really sure, you know, if, if that's the answer, um, because whether or not that research would even, you know, be looked at in the eyes of, oh, okay, you know, that's great. The research is there. We're still not sure what to do with it, but it's very alarming. It's when you say evidence-based research, um, an uneducated person like myself will go like, I don't get it. Like this is, this is water. This is the stuff that comes out of our tap. If it wasn't healthy, would you drink it? No, nobody wants to drink contaminated water. Um, mm -hmm. Nobody wants to drink water that isn't properly treated and, and safe for, for human consumption. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I don't understand the need, like why spend money on researching something that you inherently know that you know what is good and what is not good um i think by yeah. evidence-based research what i what i'm saying is that um there needs to be people who are going into these communities whether it is indigenous people themselves and i always believe that when we are asking any community any population um, how we can better support them. They have the answers. Yeah. So I think we need to start listening to them. We need to start doing proper studies um, to figure out, okay, um, and this is just an example, <laughs> but let's say there's a community, they put in the water treatment plant. Water treatment plants take about three to four years to build. Then you have to train the people to continuously run them, right? Now, I don't know what policy making goes into it. I don't know what commitments either side has, has made. But at this point, let's say it's built. Then it's the idea of, okay, 
well, are there people to run it? Have we given an opportunity in those communities for people to be trained, to have those jobs, to do those apprenticeships? Um, you know, were the, the people that were there to train them, did they stay long enough? Did they make sure that it was, it was working? Mm. And is there someone afterwards when those people who have built the plant and know how to run a plant and are experts in this field, are they still accessible when they leave? You know, these are all the questions that I think need to be answered. And also, it's, it's so much deeper than that. I think, you know, the history is that our Indigenous people were relocated, moved, kicked out of their, their land and their mm. place of home to places that were inhabitable. And the reason for that was because they're not profitable, right? Even, even back in the 1700s, right? These were areas that nobody wanted to live on because it was swampland or there wasn't enough resources. And so now we have people living on inhabitable land and we're expecting them to have the same quality of life as everyone else without all the additional supports, with all the trauma, the harm, um, everything that has happened to them. So I just think that we need to start really actively looking at, okay, we've been doing this for a number of years and it's clearly not working. So let's figure out why. Let's mm -hmm. figure out why it's not working and let's figure out how we can make it work. So that's kind of what I mean when I say evidence-based research and looking at those outcomes. Yeah. Is that it's one thing to say that, you know, everybody should have clean drinking water, which is an absolute truth and yes. an absolute must. It's another thing to really be able to know exactly how to get that done. And a big piece of that is speaking with Indigenous communities and Indigenous peoples. And every single community is going to be different. So I think we, as you talked about equity, mm -hmm. we need to look at what does every community need on its own to be able to have the basic necessity that everybody else has. It's not a blanket solution, right? Yeah. So that's kind of what I mean by that. Yeah. Watching, uh, watching this short film, there's people wearing, it's almost like a zombie, um, watching a, a zombie film where it has sort of that imagery as well. But um, it's eerily similar to what's happening today with everybody wearing masks. Uh, now in the film, people are actually wearing gas masks. Um, tell, tell me about, um, uh, sort of explain to me the, the similarities between, um, or, or the reasoning behind the, that, that imagery of the gas mask and water. So I think it's one of those things that when we, <clears throat> when we see gas masks, we think toxic, mm. we think hazardous, we think cannot breathe the air because it will kill me. And essentially that is what we are saying about the water. Um, the, water, the water is hazardous. It is unsafe. Imagine trying to bathe your child and you're standing holding your child above a tub of water, knowing that when you put your child into that water, it can mm. have harmful effects. We've seen this. This isn't something um, new. 
We've seen it happen. Kids having rashes, elderly passing away because of infection. So this is the, the, the imagery that's put into the film is to try to wake people up and say, this is what is happening. You know, in, in the beginning of the film, you see me reaching for a glass of water and I have sores on my hands. And although that part of the film is, is meant to be in 2030, yeah. this is stuff that is happening to our Indigenous communities right now. And just a few years ago, there was a big outbreak where kids were coming up with rashes, little babies. And it's really when we start explaining it in that way that I think people start to think, okay, this, this actually, this needs to be addressed. Mm. And a friend of mine actually brought up a good point when we talk about the, world, the word boil water advisories. That people are like, some people who are maybe not um, familiar with the issue, and, and I understand that, right? Might be like, okay, so they have water, but they have to boil it. And it's, like, it's one of those things that it's so much deeper than that. It's one thing to be out camping, like you said, and you boil yes. your water so you can drink it. <laughs> yes. It's another thing to have toxic, hazardous water running in your home. Imagine having to boil enough water to try to bathe in. Yeah. You know? And so I think that when we think about this, we need to really think about those key words. We need to think about unsafe water, hazardous water, toxic water, injuring children wow um these are these are all important pieces mm -hmm. and it's it's very real and it's happening all over as we call it turtle island north america and all over the world essentially and with the covid situation you know it's one of those things that they're saying well you know you have to just wash your hands and sanitize your hands every day well how can someone do that wow. in toxic water how how is wow. that possible and our Indigenous communities have already overcome and survived and warriored through so much that for us to have to go through this again, just, you know, it, it's, it's so disheartening. And it's one of the things that one of the big messages that we've kind of been trying to get out is that we need to keep, we need to protect our elders. We need to, to keep our traditions alive and our culture alive. And to do that, we need our people to be alive. Wow. Wow. That I never, I never thought of that. I, I, I had spoken with um, Tanya Talaga a few weeks mm -hmm. ago and uh, you know, she was talking about, um, you know, health and COVID and, and how the indigenous communities are, are impacted. But when you just sort of illustrated that we're told every day, wash your hands, wash your hands. What if you don't, what if you can't, what if washing your hands actually is harmful to you? Yeah. And, that and is, that's what wow. You, and that's what you see in that, that first beginning um, piece of the film is me looking at that hazardous glass of water and thinking, okay, I need water to survive. But this water is also slowly killing me. Wow. And it's that torn piece of, do I not drink the water and see how much longer I can go or do I drink it and just hope that I wake up the next morning and that is it was such a powerful message and such a powerful film and I was so honored to have mm. been a part of that 
because this is again just an, an another another struggle that indigenous people face and i hope that we can get more people to join us as allies and to want to see that change happen i i believe the field was there everything has sort of changed everything's sort of uh, up in the air so i'm not sure how things are, are being conducted now but from what i've read there was the canada film festival june 6th did that happen was it a zoom thing like this or <laughs> Yes, that did happen. Okay. Um, the film screened there. All right. uh, it was a Zoom situation for the Q&A, which was, it was cool and interesting. And um, definitely, that is the first time I've ever done a film festival like that. And the film festival was actually on uh, Super Channel Fuse. Okay. So people were able to watch it through there. It was also on, I think, Apple, Apple TV. There was a few other places you could find it. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it, it's just kind of neat because I was hoping with that, that it would actually reach more people. Good. So yes. yeah, it was very exciting. What's What's been the feedback so far that you've, you've received from this film? Oh, the feedback has been wonderful actually in the sense of people reaching out to me and saying, I saw the film, uh, I was crying, I mm. can't believe this is happening. And the real question that I'm getting from the film is how do I help? Yeah. And that, that question, I'm like, yes, that is what we were looking for. Um, and, you know, trying to just answer those questions as I can. There's a lot of different um, water organizations out there, but okay. not all of them support Indigenous communities. So it's really important to do your research um, and to find that out. But one of the things I always say to people is that when you want to, if you want to join on to be an ally for any, Indigenous support or um, progress or advocacy is to reach out to um, your friendship centers and ask Ooh. them, you know, what organizations they work with, if they have workshops, um, trainings, information sessions. And it's really great because I think there are a lot of people out there that want to create change, that want to come on as allies, but the, the, it's so overwhelming. And I understand that. It's a very overwhelming piece and people are like I just don't even know where to begin so that's always a really great place to start because they will help you um, figure out you know how you can be a part of it and it's always important to really know the history and educate yourself because I think there are a lot of um, well-hearted people that come in and want to support but when you don't have the necessary education to do that, or even just information to do that, you can actually do a lot more harm. Mm. So that is always my suggestion: is to reach out to your first, uh, your First Nations friendship centers, communities, and uh, just ask. I don't know where to begin, so please help me. And there's a lot of information, an abundance of information that you can get off of Google as well. So local friendship centers. Mm hmm. And do you know if, if, if at this time of COVID that they're operational, that, that there's people still working there? There are people there? answering okay. the phones and emails because I've okay. actually had to reach out to a few myself. Um, and so they, they, are, they are out there and they are still, um, you know, a, a limited but open for business <laughs> and uh, looking to, to answer those questions. That is perfect. I, th I think that that's a question that, that I ask all the time. And, and like you said, sometimes it's, 
it's donating money. Other times it's, it's writing to your MP complaining that, you know, why is this happening in, in, in our mm -hmm. communities? Um, but yeah, reaching out to friendship centers. Awesome. Uh, going, going to do that for sure. Um, Nadia, Nadia it, during uh, some of my research um, before you and I jumped on this, uh, on this call, you know, you've done, you know, these two amazing films um, and, and you've done other work as well. Um, and, and you're so, so engaged uh, and so passionate about um, the work that you do, uh, your, your indigenous community. Uh, but I understand there was a time when you were disconnected uh, from your culture and from your tradition. Um, I'm wondering if you could sort of uh, talk to us a little bit about that time in your life and, and why you were disconnected. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to share. And I think that this is a really important piece because being mixed Indigenous, um, my mom is not Indigenous and um, my father was. So growing up, my father was incarcerated most of my life. So I didn't mm. really have an opportunity to get a good understanding of our history and my Indigenous um, heritage. And for the most part, he didn't either. So um, he grew up not knowing much about it himself. Um, you know, my, my aunts and uncles have told me about times where, you know, <clears throat> my great uncle would get made fun of quite frequently in school because he was at that time, they termed it Indian. And it really shut the family down. So it wasn't something that they talked a lot about and shared a lot about because back then um, having native history and native ties was not um, a good thing. It wasn't mm. seen as a good thing in the world. And so he also being incarcerated was not allowed to um, celebrate um, traditions, ceremonies, or any of those things. It wasn't until I believe 1997, I think, when he first was able to start going to sweat lodges and engaging in making, you know, leather belts and, and all the kinds of things that they would have traditionally done. So with that being said, I grew up in a home that did not have any kind of indigenous influence. And it was very confusing for me. It was really difficult growing up with that because I knew there was this piece of me that I always felt so strongly about. Um, I found myself in you know school when we would have to do um, write-ups on communities I always felt myself drawn to it and I would I remember writing this long um, essay about this the Sioux people and and all this kind of stuff and I just felt myself very drawn to it because I felt mm. like I wanted to know more and then we moved to um, a town called Aurelia and just outside of Aurelia is the Rama Reservation um, in Jikining Reservation and I grew up, I went to high school with many Indigenous um, kids, and I never really talked about it. I, I don't oh. even think that any of them knew that I was Indigenous, <laughs> because I just didn't know where I belonged, and I didn't know mm. if I had a right to claim to it, because I didn't grow up with it. And, you know, as I started to engage with my father more through my teenage years, you know, it was very important to him that I did and that I was proud of who I was. And for me to continue to bring those teachings, you know, to my son, 
and to the community around me and to, to share and start to begin to live it essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And so then I started going to um, powwows and I started um, speaking with, with some of my indigenous friends and asking questions. And I slowly be able, was able to feel a bit more comfortable, but you're, you never really fully seem to find yourself fitting anywhere, you know, especially as a teenager to begin with, <laughs> you're, you're so lost sure. and confused about who you are in general. So it really um, was one of the things that I was really passionate about um, that I wanted to know more about. And as I got into college and I got into and then continued on to university, I started to really learn more about the history and the statistics of our people and the hurt and the shame. Mm. And I began to understand why it wasn't talked about in my dad's home. And why he also was disconnected from it. And how do I, um, you know, regain that knowledge? So it's, you know, it's one of those things that I think I'm just super passionate about it because of the fact that I know there's many individuals like me who are out there who probably feel like they, they don't belong on either side. And they're kind of just sitting in limbo and they want to know more, but they're afraid to ask. And I think the other thing is that the colonial system has also made it so that way people are less Indian than others, less mm. native than others, less indigenous than others by this blood quantum situation. And what I always try to explain to people, especially mixed youth who I talk to, yeah. that they're like, well, you know, I'm only, I think, one eighth. I'm like, no, 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 no. Get that out of your head. <laughs> Being indigenous is, it's an entity upon itself. It's, it's a life force. Mm. It's the way that we live and we think and we treat each other. Um, you know, we living by our seven grandfather teachings. It's, it's not just about your DNA. It's so much more than that. And it doesn't matter whether, you know, you're one quarter or you're full blooded as the system sees it. You know, there are people who have lived on the reservation, have grown up um, with all of the challenges of that, and also, you know, getting a good understanding of the culture, and, you know, are are mixed Indigenous, but but it, it is who they are. We live it. We live it every day, and I think that's the most important piece that I've learned through this reconnecting. Yeah, is that you just you find yourself in it again. That's amazing. Um, what's what's next for you, Nadia? Uh, professionally, personally, what are you looking forward to? So we are doing virtual camps with Camp Cowabunga. That people can go to campcowabunga.com and they can mm -hmm. sign their kiddos up. And there's going to be crafts and story time and singing and all kinds of things. So with the filming kind of being shut down, we've had to maneuver a little bit. Sure. And we wanted to still bring that lovely, the zany characters of Camp Cowabunga to, uh, to, to the family homes. So, I mean, you can watch the episodes on YouTube. You can access them through campcowabunga.com. But we wanted to keep it going. We, we're not ready to, to stop and to shut down. So we've got some really great stuff that'll be coming up. I'll be filming next weekend. So I'm looking very forward to that. 
And I've also been in talks with some other directors and film writers about, um, again, kind of more storytelling and um, bringing awareness to some other pieces within our Indigenous communities and topics that I hope, um, you know, we can get those films up and going. And so yeah, so there's lots of lots of stuff going on in the film world. And personally, I'm just looking to, um, you know, strengthen uh, my bonds within communities um, and support them where I can. We're doing more work with um, uh, influencers motivate. Mm -hmm. uh, so we are looking at doing some more PSAs around the COVID and safety. And we are also looking to do some virtual events for people, which hopefully will be fun as well. So yeah, just trying to uh, utilize myself in the best way that I can, but uh, you know, just growing and learning and all the things that we should be doing. <laughs> that is awesome. Nadia, this has been so much fun and uh, I've learned so much as well uh, speaking with you. So, so thanks for that. Before I let you go though, um, I, I know you're active on social um, and uh, whether it's with uh, Camp Kawabunga or other projects you're working with, I'm sure you'll be uh, letting everybody know there. So where can people go to keep up to date with, uh, with what you're up to? Yeah, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook. My handle is Nadia George Official. I do have a Twitter account, but I'm just letting everybody know. I don't use it. I'm okay. still learning it. So, but if you'd like to follow me there, you can do that too on Nadia G Official. So that's kind of where I post more of my political stuff, I think. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm always up to something. I'm always around. So please give me a follow. Uh, anyone can reach me out there and if they have questions as well about anything that we talked about today. Yeah. And especially if M. Night uh, Shyamalan is looking for someone. I hear oh you're a huge fan. Oh my goodness. <laughs> if he hears this, please let me just have one audition. I do the best tree. I am the best tree. I will play a mailbox in this film. <laughs> like I am... <laughs> with his storytelling yes that is my ultimate goal ultimate goal well well let's well let's put that ask ask out there in the universe that's and, right uh, um <laughs> he'll he'll hey if he if he listens to this that's awesome for both for the both of us right <laughs> yes nadia thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it well thank you for having me stay safe and stay blessed